there wasn't none of that. There was a really lovely way of getting opinions across and speaking and and discussion. Mm-hmm. And I thought this is what's missing actually in society. We're missing a space for respectful discourse in real life, not just on the social media, in real life. Hello and welcome to Arrest All Mimics. My name is Ben Tallon. This is the Creative Innovation Podcast. How are you doing? Are you good? How are you holding up? How's the embers of lockdown for you? Are you feeling stressed? Is it too early? Should we all be out there living life or are you cowering in the corner of your flat? Let me know. I hope everybody's good. Thank you for the feedback on last week's part one of this special episode. What's the effing point? Uh, Part one was with designer Craig Oldham, Manchester-based, Bandley born and bred, a very fiery, passionate account of his belief in the power of creativity and the importance of personal the personal the insular the things that make you tick specifically you and the idea that that bleeds into the love of others i guess you know how we can create something that's inherent to us from our background about our heritage about the way we feel about a very specific aspect of the world and the way that that catches fire and, and inspires people and motivates them and makes them feel good, makes them angry, evokes a response of some kind. I found Craig hugely inspiring. And as I mentioned in the intro to that podcast, it came at a time when I was feeling very down on, on myself, on, on my ideas, on, on the worth of what I do for a profession and what I've done all my life, which began with drawing as a child right through to this career here as a illustrator, a lettering specialist, a writer and a podcaster and, and many other things. You know, I, I guess I'm one of those people that swans around the creative industry trying to do a lot of things and not all of it works, but I do find opening doors when I express the way that I feel about something in, a, in an artistic way and put it out for the world to enjoy to loathe to whatever it might be um so go back and listen to that episode please if you do get the chance we're on spotify itunes all the good podcast platforms wherever you get these things um and at the host site soundcloud.com forward slash arrest all mimics keep the feedback coming please at arrest all mimics on the social media on twitter and instagram primarily love hearing from you guys always very welcome quickly before i get into part two's guest today dewinda bansal a little thank you for the crucial, vital supporters of the show. Founding sponsor, IllustrationX.com, formerly Illustration Web. Had a fantastic rebrand. Still the all-singing, all-dancing, wonderful portfolio website featuring illustrators, animators, all the people they represent. It's, um, it's a wonderful spread of work. Truly global. Offices in New York and Paris and Shanghai and all over the show. Truly global illustration agency doing a lot of great work for the industry in conjunction with the likes of... Also a fellow sponsor, the Association of Illustrators and the likes of Society of Artists Agents, the SAA. Um, go and check them out. They've got a brilliant news section on the website where you can get behind the curtain on certain projects with the artists that they represent. They've got everything from fashion illustrators to lettering specialists to mural artists to uh, gift makers. They've, they've got someone to fit what it is that you need. So go and check them out, illustrationx.com. And as I mentioned, the Association of Illustrators, critical organisation for the illustration industry, working with you on portfolios, uh, big, big awards night, the World Illustration Awards in conjunction with the Directory of Illustration over there in the States. Um, they do the nitty gritty stuff that we struggle with, so contractual advice, pricing help. Um, they will help you out of a rut if that's what you need as a member. So go and take a look. I highly recommend membership. So thank you for the support for the show. 
so part two here we are i'm still in the tool shed still in the in-laws tool shed the father-in-laws tool shed there's a dart hanging out of the wall above the window right in front of me there's um, a suspiciously high dustpan and brush up there there's a flat cap there's a million saws and adhesive sprays and it's a cool environment to work um been working on a new project this week which i can't quite reveal yet um and also pushing forward on the book which i announced last week your mum and other stories from the back streets of britain excited to get this one out there 21 illustrations 21 dirty little short stories about um i guess just the culture of growing up on these streets and the things that not too many people talk about but we all recognize and laugh at so you know the illustrations range from uh, used condom to a fag packet to a mattress at the side of a skip those really tragic bikes with no wheels um, which is a personal favourite story from the book it's going to be a little indie venture limited amount of print copies um, coming very soon it's ETA early October there's also going to be an ebook with illustrations and an audio book so it's really exciting and it's kind of nerve wracking too as I mentioned with Craig in conversation I, I had a lot of doubt about this project given the, the magnitude of everything that's going on in the world and you know where did that fit within all of this did it even fit of course it didn't you know like Craig said late at night we sit there and we question everything we do and I found it especially comforting coming from someone like Craig who's you know admittedly profane he's passionate he can come across as bullish but I think at his heart he's a very considered designer in love with the craft um, and therefore it was wonderful to hear in the best possible way that he had his own doubts and would sit there and what you know what am I doing this stuff about the miners strike um, this work about you know whatever it is he's working on whatever the latest project is we, we question everything i think that's the i think that's the nitty-gritty you know that even the they live book that we discussed based on john carpenter's sci-fi b-movie in the 80s uh they live with roddy roddy piper from then wwf um you know that's what got me going i watched his talk on nicer tuesdays at uh, you know that it's nice that put together go and watch it on youtube for free um, and it's a great example of how the insular and how his filmy nerd streak came to the fore and produced a book that, you know, just created another wave for a film that has, you know, had huge ripple effects over the years, um, especially inspiring the likes of Shepard Fairey and a lot of different street artists and counterculture artists. And long may that continue. So um, today's guest, let's get into that. Sorry, so we get coffee there. It's early doors. The Winder Bansal, I'm going to read from my bio because I can put it across better than, um, you know, I will give you my own experience and my current love of Dewinder's work in a moment, but let's get the official stuff down. Dewinder Bansal is an award-winning British producer and artist. She has a track record of producing brand new stage shows and creating immersive art installations by weaving South Asian cultural heritage and contemporary stories into her work. Throughout the past decade, she's produced site-specific shows, exhibitions, art installations and festivals to spark curiosity of new audiences and international press. Clients include National Festival of Making, Multistory, BBC, Centro Cultural Banco de Brazil. Sorry for the Yorkshire pronunciation on that. Channel 4, English Heritage, South Bank Centre, Selfridges, Oldham Coliseum and Cast in Doncaster. Doinda also was responsible for developing and producing South Bank Centre's largest South Asian festival, Alchemy, for the Black Country region. The Winder's recent commissions include Asian Women and Cars. We're going to talk in depth about that. Road to Independence, exploring untold stories of the first generation Asian women who learned to drive in the UK. Sorry, that's my mistake. I split that title completely in half. I'll go again. Asian Women and Cars, Road to Independence. <laughs> my God, shambles. Making of a South Asian Wedding, commissioned by the National Festival of Making. 
to engage diverse audiences by exploring wedding-making traditions of South Asian communities during the 1980s era. Jambal Cinema commissioned Barbican Arts Centre for Leytonstone Loves Film Festival, an autobiographical film and immersive living room experience about growing up in her parents' Bollywood VHS film rental shop during the 1980s. Trust me, it's truly wonderful. She produced Mother Tongues from Fatherlands, a stage show for London South Bank Centre, was a finalist for the Best Stage Production 2017 in the ITV's Asian Media Awards. The Windows Commission Fest- Making of a South Asian Wedding, National Festival of Making, is currently cited by Arts Council England, Creative People and Places Programme as a leading example and best practice for creating work with, a, with and for diverse communities. As a consultant, she uses her expertise to help mid-large-scale arts organisations and festivals to achieve diverse and non-arts attending or audience engagement. That's a key part of what we're going to talk about today and very pertinent for these times. In 2018, Dewinda was invited to 10 Downing Street to meet with the Prime Minister to discuss her work with communities and her ambition to use arts to address loneliness in the UK. In 2017, she was recipient of a high commendation by Asian Women of Achievement Awards. She is Fellow of the Royal Society of the Arts, Arts Advisor to the prestigious Chairwood Arts Foundation and serves on the Diversity Board at ITV Central. There we go. So, big, big hitter. Um, I met Dewinda a couple of years ago in Blackburn when she was putting on um, her brilliant making of a South Asian wedding at the Festival of Making. So I worked with the Festival of Makings, uh, Eleanor and Lauren, who were a part of, well, who formed Deco Public, and they're a great organisation uh, based in the northwest. And and this festival is is brilliant because they do, it's multi layered. So it brings together the the local community in a place, Blackburn, that's got a lot of interest in the arts and gets overlooked like a lot of the small industrial towns within that festival. They run the fantastic art and manufacturing program, which essentially brings together places of industry and arts to make greater use of both sets of skills. So I interviewed several of the people working on that project and um, it's great. I mean, for example, there was Martin Ware, former of former actually alumni guest on this show as part of the same project. He was a founding member of Human League and Heaven 17 iconic bands in the 80s real pioneers in the field and Martin was he now works on many many soundscapes and audio installations all around the world after kind of getting out of the commercial game and he went into the lights of the Silent Night factory and recorded conversations and soundscapes with the people in there manufacturing the beds and the like so um and then you know produce a soundscape within an old northern soul venue in Blackburn Tony's ballroom Tony's was it Empress ballroom Tony's ballroom anyway Iconic venue, long since closed, they've been closed a decade at the time, and they did bust out this amazing performance with this soundscape where you sit with a limited number of people in a circle and take it all in, and this whole project about art and manufacturing. And then there's, as Martin described it at the time, a sting in the tail at the end where they have a couple of fantastic Northern Soul dancers come out. So that's the kind of example of a project that was going on. And Dewinda's project, Making Him a South Asian Wedding, was very much a part of that. So she was the third and final person that I featured, and we only got the chance to sit down and talk very briefly because she was there curating this whole, all singing, all dancing, theatre installation, performance, spectacle. So what happened was I had the whole morning to take it all in, and I sat down and you know tried making some samosas with the Blackburn Curry Club ladies. Uh, I watched the preparations, you know, kids coming in, getting involved with local families and having a go at this, and then watching you know the eighties TV and the eighties carpet and the in this amazing, amazing, authentic set. 
And the big striking thing was that it really didn't differ all that much from any other 80s home. You know, it didn't matter about whether it was a South Asian family in there, an English family, whatever it might be. It was powerful in its simplicity and its lack of confrontation. And that's what grabbed me about the project. So when I eventually got to talk to Dewinder, it was very rushed and, and I was yearning to have a deeper conversation about her own cultural heritage. As the first born and raised generation of South Asian, you know, people, her parents moved here, she's going to describe, from India in, I believe, the 60s. And it's a fascinating story about how they acclimatised and how that experience of living in Wolverhampton back then really crystallised something in Dewinder, in, in, a, in a part of her personality and the way that it now informs her projects. And it goes back to what I was saying about Craig. It's in a very, very passionate, personal endeavour. But it's done in such a thoughtful, considered and powerful way that it resonates with anyone who comes into contact with the project. And Dewinder will get in depth with me about why it's important to get it to places, you know, outside of the traditional arts run, you know, maybe the big cities, the, the Londons, the Manchester, the Birmingham's, the Edinburgh's of the UK, and why it's critical to engage with audiences in places where there are these tensions, perhaps, where there are a lot of different people from ethnic backgrounds, and there are many, many hurdles and misunderstandings and divides perhaps driven by media. We won't go down that path here in this intro because it's we'll be here all day and I'll end up getting banged to rights and it's just not worth it. But Dewinda was just inspiring and I found her an incredibly powerful lady when we sat down and talked and I just it wasn't enough to have that 15 minute conversation. So it's taken us two years to get back to this. But it just seems very pertinent and very timely and we had long conversations over WhatsApp voice notes about just the state of things and about where Dewinder's work's going. And it was amazing, actually, to kind of rekindle what started as an interesting chat and some kind of a small connection back then. And it's blossomed and we and we talk quite regular and, and, you know, we have a lot of shared passions within our work. And as I mentioned in my chat with Craig and on the intro in the last episode, I've always had a real fire for graphic activism and people doing good with their work or, you know, starting a conversation, some real meaning in the work. And I think Dewinda has that in spades, and it's really, really quite amazing. Um, the stuff that she does, she's going to tell us about Asian Women in Cars, The Road to Independence. Really, really great project. She's going to tell us about Jambo Cinema, um, the memories and, and the reconstruction of the living room slash VHS electrical store in her father ran in, in her younger years. Um, she tells it way better than I, so I'm not going to bang the drum too much, but I think, and the reason I wanted to do these two episodes is that it's a wonderful, wonderful example of how it doesn't have to be so overwhelming. We don't have to look at the news, sink into an abject despair and never pick up our tools again. It doesn't have to be that. How about doing that sketch? How about writing that one line joke? How about picking up a camera and filming what's going on? The guy down the road who you found has got some interesting opinions. I don't know what it is. Only you can know that. Only you should ever know that. But you should leave with it and you should leave with the heart. And Dewinder and Craig Oldham, Dewinder Bansal and Craig Oldham are two of the best examples I've found recently of doing that, of working with passion, of believing that there is an audience out there and that it can communicate with many people. And there's a reason why they're thriving and flying and inspiring right now. So... That's pretty much all I've got to say in this introduction. I hope you enjoy it. I hope you get something from this two-part episode. Please do get feedback on social media at Rest Almanix. Let me know the projects that are lighting you up. As I mentioned last week, I'm going to, I guess off the back of falling back in love with this book project that I've been working on, um, I want to dig deeper and I want to showcase a number of wonderful personal projects that have really inspired me over the years and show me that you can do things your way, that you should do things your way in the arts. 
There was a great conversation on the RS Mix Twitter thread that came from uh, Josh Clark, actually. So looking up Josh Clark's a designer that I've been in touch with for a while on, on the socials. And he asked about, you know, the increasing amount of design jobs where motion graphics was required as a part of it, you know, and, and does that apply to, you know, illustrators were chiming in saying, yeah, you know, God, I, I get approached with jobs now and they want me to make it move and all this stuff. Big conversation about that, about specialism, about... Um, why it doesn't always have to be either or you hate your work or you love your work and there's nothing in between as in you love the personal work and you hate the commercial work i disagree with you know that that has to be the thing that was one of the threads that got started up off the back of a comment i found only to my delight that most clients are willing to listen and persevere to look for the best creative solution to any given job and and you know if you respect them and you talk to them properly and you talk openly and you tell them how you feel it can you can get there i mean don't get me wrong there are there are what i always call papas jobs that you know that we just have to turn around they work you know they, maybe they pay well maybe they set you up for the next run of creative work i don't know it's about retaining sight isn't it and working hard with you leading with your own identity and where you want to go because you you know you do have to lead the horse to water um as nick chubb said on, on an episode about portfolios going you know go and listen back in the archive he said if i can't see it in your portfolio you can't do it that's how it works you have to create a portfolio that is a statement of intent about where you want to go with your work not what you've done and what you can do because that you know like attracts like anyway i've gone on long enough thank you again to the supporters of the show illustrationx.com theaoi.com let's get into it Dwinda bansal incredible incredible artist um here we go you know what i was thinking about when my earliest memory of really enjoying the arts was and it was actually in primary school with mr prescott and he exposed us to world culture mm. and and world art as well and i distinctly remember that period in primary school because it was all about being creative and um we did a lot of you know there was these sort of clay tile not the clay tiles they were like printing onto onto tiles and you had to sort of carve out very carefully an animal and I at that point we were doing Australia so I did a koala and then we did also did Japanese art and then we did we went to Wolverhampton market and we learned all about African food so we did lots of different things that year because of this teacher who wanted to expose us as kids to as much different I suppose different types of art and culture and people that are in the world. Mm. So I think that's my, that was, that was a very, that's a very distinct memory that I've got of my time as a, as a youngster of when I really enjoyed it. And of course, like you get involved with things as well. Um, but my uh, sort of, you know, get involved in productions and that kind of thing at Christmas time. And that was always lots of fun. And then I suppose at home at the same time, so my parents, they owned a, my dad owned an electrical shop, which also um, doubled up as a Bollywood film rental shop. Mm. And so that really meant that I got to watch hundreds and hundreds of films for free. <laughs> Not all of them were good. Some of them were quite bad. But, yeah, it kind of exposed me to... Um, I suppose storylines and lots of different types of costume and creativity and the way that things were put together, the way that stories were told. And I remember the first time I watched 
like a film and it had a different like it had the same actor in it but it was a different storyline different film and I was like oh what is he in that he's supposed to be in the other one and then it real and then I realized that you know he's an actor mom explained it to me and stuff and she's like no no this is what this is what their job is they have to they have, they do different films and look he's in this one he's in this one he's in this one so that was kind of interesting um but yeah so I suppose home life was very much you know school life was very much learning about British culture and other cultures and home life was very much list- learning about my own culture and heritage and because my my mom couldn't speak English and still can't speak English very well so it's always meant that speaking Punjabi at home mm. so my Punjabi is really good compared to some of my friends who've got parents who could speak English as well and but they speak English in the house so that's been quite a nice thing that I've retained my you know ability to speak um Punjabi and and yeah so I'm first generation born in this country and it's there's a difference actually because some people say oh are you second generation or are you first generation I said well my parents came over and I'm first born in this country so that I guess that must make me first generation born in the country um and they came from um my parents were both born in india neighboring villages and then they got married and then it was an arranged marriage my parents my mom didn't see my dad until the wedding day oh wow so it was all kind of arranged by the elders in those days and um I find that fascinating and completely scary. Um, but it was a case of, yeah, the elders know what's best and we will arrange everything. And it was accepted as well. Um, so, yeah, so they got married and then they left there and my father's family was already in Kenya. And so went to Kenya, stayed there for a number of years until the tension started to rise and then Kenya got independence and then that's when a lot of the um people like my parents had had to leave had to leave kenya and then they came to the uk because there was a a mass exodus of kenyan indians that had to leave and then a few years after that there was the exile of the indians from uganda so then it was a case of I mean, I've always thought this. I've thought, I, I can't believe that actually happened, whereby people, communities were settled in one place for so many years and had businesses, had families, had properties, had everything. And then we're just told to go. It's crazy, really, when you think about it. It's, um... To be in a country for 70, 80 years and then like have generations of families. It's insane, really, isn't it? I mean, um, the closest thing I mean, I've got, I don't have anything in my own circle. I can relate to that. Um, but I have my closest friends, Danny Skerritt, his uh, grandma was part of the Windrush generation. And famously and horrendously recently, you know, they, re- they got their letters saying, you know, you may have to leave. And it's, and it's, it's, it's unthinkable. I mean, what is that? Yeah. I mean, if you've been settled in a country for so long, that that particular episode with the Windrush was horrendous and should never, ever have happened. Mm-hmm. Shameful. Truly shameful. So, 
Um, I suppose, yeah. Gr so growing up, um, that's kind of been my my time, really. And then, of course, I, so I've got... It's almost like my parents had two families because my oldest brother is 20 years older than me. And then the one down from that is 18 years older than me. And so I also had their influences as well. So they spoke English in the house and my second eldest brother, he was a welder. He like he left school at 15 and he became a welder and he um, was into rock and he played the guitar and he's still into rock and he still plays the guitar. And him, now him and his son go out and do like a circuit around the Midlands as they call Bantle Electrics because they both play electric guitars. Oh, that's brilliant. <laughs> and, I, and actually the old shop, the shop, my father's shop used to be called Bantle Electrical. So they said, well, we're going to carry on the, um, <laughs> the name, which is lovely. Um, and uh, yeah, so they go out in, in and around Wolverhampton. So his influences of rock and you know, lots of different types of, I suppose, British, American music at that time. I've got that influence as well. Mm. So I feel really lucky in that sense because I've been exposed to so much around me that's very different. And I guess that's, I think that's really useful as an artist. Crucial. I mean, God, uh, not to, to, to jump in, I, mean, I just, but this came up a little while back I can't remember, I can never remember which agency it was but I was talking to a creative director at an agency and they we you know we, we got talking about diversity and specifically within that environment within a place that you're going to work every day and your job is to generate interesting and innovative ideas and come up with new concepts and the rest of it for you know for clients truly global because of the internet now surely it should be right up there paramount importance to fill that space with as many interesting people from as many different backgrounds as possible so that we all feed from one another and we all come up with all these great ideas it should be a no-brainer really mm, exactly that's it because then you think oh that happens it, some things connect and you don't you wouldn't think they would and then you end up creating something which is really amazing because there's just so so much difference between them but there's there's something that makes that connection really spark. Mm. So yeah, I agree with you. Yeah, it should be it should be full of as much diversity and difference um, as possible. And uh, and you know, there's there's something else that it does when when we've got difference within our society and communities. It it brings about a sense of understanding and openness and curiosity. And I mm -hmm. think that's really important. It's important to be curious. It really is, and it as I mean, this is going to be a core theme of talking about your project, but it humanizes concepts that might otherwise just be either alien or in in the wrong hands intimidating you know or or demonized um and and they're not they're truly it's truly wonderful to have i remember i'll never forget going to london for the first time to show my portfolio not for the first time i've been with my parents but first time on my own um as a 23 year old um taking my portfolio down to london for the first time and, and staying in an 11 quid a night hostel in Brixton, which was above the Hootenanny, and the Hootenanny was, I had no idea about this at the time, was the hotspot to get weed and whatever else that you wanted. <laughs> and they had reggae nights, ska nights, it was, you know, there's fried chicken out on, the, out, out on the flags out there. It was incredible to go there from Preston, which was great in its way, a university, but to go to London and be in that environment and meeting people from all over the world, but, you know, each in these 10 bed dorms was an incredible experience and I'll never forget sitting on the train and feeling quite melancholy about the fact that I had to go back to my little room in, my, in, in a million 
you know, having just done that. And I thought that's everything that's great, not just about creative industry, but just about mingling and about learning and about all them people. So it was just, um, it was something special and it's something I've, I've sought to retain and, and get as much of in my life ever since because it just enriches. Mm. It does. It does. And I think traveling does that as well. Because when I was, I was in Brazil, I had to go to Brazil for a work opportunity in 2009. And, um, and that was pretty incredible. And the first thing I did when I got there, I was like, okay, this is extremely out of my comfort zone, massively out of my comfort zone. And then I started looking at everything that was different. And then I started looking at everything that was the same. So, um, and then I ended up going to places like doing weekend trips to different parts of South America. And I went to Argentina, I went to the Iguazu Falls, I went to different places of Brazil. And that it's what you're talking about. And I, and I deliberately chose to live in, um, to stay, to use my time to stay in youth hostels. Mm. And that was particularly because you met so many people from around the world in those places. And there's people that I met in those youth hostels that um, I'm also still in touch with now. And that amount of intensive time that you spend together with people from, you know, when you're, when you're, when you're traveling and for me anyway, I've never felt so alive. I've never felt so enriched and so alive. And it can be a little bit scary because it's you and you're on your own. But I think you end up meeting more people. You end up speaking more. You end up being much more of an open person because you have to be. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. yeah, and there's something about something about you changes in that space, and um, but it's like what you said. You end up being exposed to all these different things, and um, you know, I ended up meet. I ended up meeting. I spent New Year's in Rio, and that and that was on my own. I just decided to book myself into a, a youth hostel, and knew nobody there. And then I met a friend. I met well. I met somebody called from Manchester called Liz and I'm still in touch with her now and she's still in Manchester and we spent I didn't know her and we spent time together and there was a big group of us at the end but it was just um I mean we're all from different parts of the world from Germany from Belgium from different parts of Brazil from Argentina from America from France everywhere yeah it's, it's absolutely wonderful um yeah again and that's we we hit upon this didn't we in a in a, in a chat we had but it, that's what's great about this industry about the creative industry people are very curious and tend to be open-minded and and generally you know all right people <laughs> and, definitely yeah really really open and and i find um you know want want to dig deep want mm-hmm. to dig deep into into the essence of something and i think that's when you can do that and bring it out and make it universal, which is what I try to do with a lot of my work. I'm like, I try to pick something quite specific and then think, how is this relatable to mm-hmm. other people and why should they care? Because it's all very well talking about something that you understand, but how do you make it relatable to everybody else? Yes. Yeah, completely. That's, that's it. That's the crux of a successful project that comes across as quite niche that's it. That's the the crux of success, isn't it? Is is the relatability and the ability to to make it accessible for people to come and understand yeah. and apply their own nuances. Yeah, yeah. And so when I um, so when we met, 
over in 2018 at the Festival of Making. I don't know if you know, but just before that, sort of just before I was commissioned, actually, um, there was a BBC piece, a BBC panorama documentary, I think it was, definitely BBC documentary anyway. And it was talking about this racism and the divide between the, the Muslim Asian community in Blackburn and the white community there. Mm-hmm. And um, there was also something else in The Guardian as well a few years ago, and they were talking about the very same thing. So it was this reinforcement that there is this separation between communities. And, um, and I do think, actually, that the media like to North bash they like to bash the North whenever they get the opportunity. But anyway, that was going on in the news. And so I saw this and I thought, oh gosh, I'm going to be, I'm going to struggle to engage with people if this is what it's really like there. And then I got the commission and I sent it to uh, the Festival of Making team and they, the directors really loved it. And they just said, this is amazing. And I had about six, seven weeks to pull it all together. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know anyone there. I didn't know anyone in Blackburn. Obviously, you can tell from my accent, I'm from the Black Country. And it was a, it was one of those things where you think I've said yes to this, and I don't know if I'm going to be able to do it because <laughs> I don't know anyone there. I've got no connections. I've got no community there that I can draw upon. And then, um, Actually, interestingly, I got speaking to uh, another artist, another Asian artist who worked in that area. And I said, oh, you know, you've worked there. What's your perspective on it? And he just said to me, you're going to find it impossible, Dorinda, because I I couldn't work there. I couldn't get anyone to really engage with me. And I think you're going to find it quite difficult because, first of all, you're not from the area. And second of all, you're also not Muslim. So if you're trying to get into the Muslim community, you're going to find it pretty impossible. Mm. So then I was like, okay, there's lots of barriers here. And I'm just going to have to just push through them and see what I can do. So it was a case of this is going to happen and I don't know how it's going to happen, but let's just have the end picture in mind. And then I went, I got like a little introduction through someone at the Festival of Making, Eleanor at the Festival of Making, um, and then started talking to people. And I remember this one night, I, went, I met this one lady who runs um, the pie company. She was part of their front room factories in the first year. And I, got, I met her and she walked me around Warley Range at night, 11 o'clock at night, knocking on people's doors. I said, Zainab, it's like 11 o'clock at night. Are you sure this is okay? And she went, yeah, it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. So we went around. We were knocking on all these doors, going into strangers' houses. I was give, being given tea and, you know, snacks and things. And I just thought there is a really strong sense of community here. And actually, some of these stereotypes, they need to be just done away with because it's not true. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when I got working into the community eventually and I got speaking to people and making my own connections, I didn't find that there was that disconnect. I didn't find that at all. And actually, Blackburn is no different to anywhere in Birmingham or Wolverhampton. You have pockets of areas where you have a community that have congregated in. There's a, there's a higher population of a community, but that's because they might have moved there to begin with and stayed there because there is such a strong sense of community. 
and that's what we do. And that's what we do as humans too. You know, it's like we we just from my own experiences of going travelling. If I, you know, if I saw another Brit in the room or anyone with any other kind of connection to me, you would as, as almost as a safety mechanism. You go and you say hello, and that, it's almost like an armour, isn't it? It's a social armour cultural yeah. armor i guess so people do and people with things in common do congregate so that's why you have communities and that's why it's nice you know yeah and it's important as well and i just thought this is lovely and then you know eventually got to meet lots of different people uh, made lots of friends got adopted as someone's granddaughter um <laughs> so it was really lovely um <coughs> in fact whenever i go to blackburn she always says to me you must let me know doing doing you're coming here because i need to feed you um because they all think that i'm just you know i'm too skinny um which i'm not by the way <laughs> um and yeah so there's those really have developed some brilliant friendships real good solid wholesome real connections there mm-hmm. um and then when you know so it was sort of bringing the project together we went right into the heart of blackburn um uh, blackburn market in fact i was offered kind of a few different spaces when i went into blackburn to see kind of where the the installation could be so the so the project was called uh, the making of a south asian wedding and it was all about making traditions in the south asian community um and it didn't it didn't look at faith it was it took i took faith right out of the picture i just wanted to focus on the cultural aspects of what united that community because there are divisions within the south asian community for sure um and i didn't want to focus on that i wanted to focus on what brought us together and what's what what connects us all and so it was making of a South Asian wedding. It was set in the 1980s and we had a 1980s wedding reception hall. And as well, we had created a 1980s living room, Indian living room. And that was really, I suppose, the shell of multiple different types of workshops that happened in those spaces, which were about making traditions that used to happen in the 80s that don't really happen now as a result of the community settling in and therefore there's lots of things that are easy to buy online and much more convenient um, and that kind of thing but I wanted to bring back that time really to um, for us to remember what was good about the past and I started thinking about it and I thought okay well in the in the 80s there was no Sunday trading there was, you know, there was less money. So it meant that you had to rely on people around you to help you out with making things. And there was a closeness. There was, there was a closeness. And there were, even though there was less resource and less money, there was more time. And time is one of the things that it's really underrated. It's so underrated about time and how we spend it and how we use our time. And I think... I also observed that there was a lot less loneliness mm-hmm. and the, 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 that, so these are the types of things I think about when I'm creating work. I'm like, okay, what's the layer here? And then what's the additional layer and what's the real human layer? And the human layer for me was, okay, there was much more community connection. There was much more closeness. There was probably less loneliness, which meant that maybe there was less mental illnesses of depression or if there was that, that aspect of things or maybe uh people could could see that someone wasn't doing too well and, and how did they sort of rally around to help out that person 
So I, that, th these are the types of things I was thinking about. And, um, you know, it's one of those things, isn't it? Like when they say a problem shared is a problem halved. And these women, particularly the curry, curry club ladies who made the samosas, they were amazing. They were so welcoming. They were so much fun. They were so engaging with the audiences that came to the festival. Um, but they also, you know, they've also had difficult lives. You know, they, they, they left. So these particular ladies, a lot of them are from East Africa as well. And they came to Blackburn and they were telling me, they said, you know, it was difficult settling in and we were lonely a lot of the time. And we went, we've come from a really sunny climate to a really dark and gloomy one. And we faced a lot of racism and we faced a lot of, you know, prejudice and difficulty here. Um, and we couldn't get things that we needed and we couldn't speak the language and we've learned to speak it over time. And it was very difficult in that initial period of settling in. But, you know, they, they were just such amazing women to bring into that mix and then to expose those women to, you know, people who might not ordinarily engage with them. And that was what this project was about. It was about what are those connections that never normally happen? And so putting it, putting the, putting the um, installation into a very public space, like the market, where it was completely open and everyone could see what was going on. That was a deliberate decision. Mm -hmm. and, very, and a very smart one. I, mean, I am just from an outsider enjoying the, you know, the, the performance and, and, and the space. I was blown away by it because it was such a, it's, it's a home. You're inviting someone in quite literally into a home and you see all the things that you see in any home, no matter the, the, the background, as in framed pictures of loved ones, um, you know, things on shelves, uh, carpets, wallpaper. It very quickly reminds you that despite all the, the bullshit in the media that is dressed up to, to d divide and alienate people and make them fear their neighbour. So mm -hmm. These are just people, and I think it's what you said to me doing there when we chatted ahead of the show, that we've all got ups in our lives, we've all got downs, and we've all got things going on. We're all just trying to get somewhere. And you can't take that away, and that was very evident, you know, because you walk into a space where there's making, there's celebration, there's people um, swapping skills and chatting, and there's kids enthralled by this thing that's going on in that very innocent, childlike way that, that's beautiful. Um, and you know, and at its at its most just simple level, it's a chance for people to come and have a day out and see something new and go away and get something to talk about, you know. Um, and for all those reasons, I just thought, wow, what a wonderful way of of breaking down some boundaries and dealing with um, a, a big issue. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's it's what you just said there. It and the thing that I always go back to is it gave people the the opportunity and the license to be curious mm -hmm. so they could i remember someone saying to me they're like what 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 is this thing what is this silver thing or why do you make this food and why is this pattern relevant and why is this and you know interestingly like majority of the audiences that came through that day were white audiences mm -hmm. and and that kind of exchange of culture and why we do things and being able to ask i think you know it's a good thing to do and it's good to be curious and it's good to ask and people need to feel comfortable about asking, you know, oh, that's different to what we do. Um, why do you do that? 
and and that's okay to do that um mm-hmm. it's okay to ask questions and in that particular creative environment but things feel so completely different to your own culture yeah why not and, and then it, what happens is you end up talking about more things and then and then somewhere along the line you end up realizing oh yeah we do these but we do we call it something else or there's there's some sort of common ground that is suddenly discovered and you and you have a new appreciation for a culture or a custom or an idea yeah and it goes back to what you said about your um lovely story about primary school and about learning about other things it's that very um there's there's nothing wrong you know at that age with asking that's just what you do because you're learning the world as a child and at some point in our lives we stop learning the world in the same way don't we and it's and we it's almost like we get to 14 15 and we feel like we should know everything we need to know and all of a sudden oh i don't want to look stupid i can't ask that and then you get into education or work and oh you know no i still can't ask that you know and, and it's really sad that that stops and, it, and it's also really sad that people stop playing and exploring and experimenting when it comes to creativity so what your project did in my opinion is is just just re-inject that in a really fun playful way you know as i saw multiple families kind of come by stop look from the outside and just stand there with their carrier bag you know and like <laughs> and watch these people celebrating and around, around the car that you had outside and and it's, you know if, if nothing more than I saw something really interesting in town today you know that's a great thing in itself <laughs> yeah the car the car ended up getting a lot of attention as well from lots of men um, mm. and just lots of people because it was dressed up like a wedding car very glittery <laughs> very glittery but yeah I mean that's the, the car and the the it was it, I wanted to sort of just make something for everybody there mm-hmm. would be something that someone would see that yeah. would spark something about a discussion they, yeah. they could be standing next to somebody else and they would say oh, I do you know that, that's what I like I really love it when people strangers start speaking to each other because mm-hmm. of them having this interaction through the work it's great as a as a way of of just taking away any kind of intimidation factor or you know if you're an introvert it makes things a hell of a lot easier i think because you have a front almost and a, and a way a connector in between yeah exactly exactly and that's what we always want as humans we just want to connect and we just want to feel understood and and i think creativity is, is definitely a vehicle for that yes without without a shadow of a doubt so i just just to jump back a little bit i'm really interested in what so the medium you work in i find fascinating you know within theater and performance and and these reconstructions what 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 were what were the early steps to that um well i've always been interested in people's stories i think that comes from watching so many films actually so i've always been interested in people's stories and i've always been interested in uh what what what's kind of hidden what we don't know, what we can't see. And so I ended up having a background in, okay, so I did a computer science degree because I was told by my older brother to do something sensible. Then I left that because I hated the computer science. I was like, I'm never doing this in my life. Um, then I did some volunteering at a radio station and thought, this is kind of interesting. And my, my, I remember my older brother saying to me, you've got a degree why are you volunteering people who volunteer don't have anything going on for them <laughs> I was just like no so this is like he just thought, he just thought I was crazy 
you know, just or to just get on with life. And um, and from my perspective, I was like, well, okay, okay, I've just graduated. I'm I'm used to being poor because I haven't got much money, and I never had much money at university. And so, if I start a job, it's it's quite it's quite an interesting thought pattern that I had then. Actually, if you think about it, it's quite insightful because I thought if I get into a job, I'm going to get used to the money. When I get used to the money, I'm going to start buying things, and I'm going to get used to a particular level of financial income, and I might end up committing to things. So, I think I'm going to try and give myself a shot at getting into the creative industry. And if I don't do it, then I'm just going to I'm going to I'm just going to have to just do what my family want me to do or what's kind of like the sensible thing to do practically financially mm-hmm. and then I ended up like a year 18 months went by and I didn't get anything and then December I think it was December 2003 this opportunity came up it was midnight the application was meant to be in and it was particularly it was for the from, from the independent theatre council and they were particularly looking for black and Asian people to come into the sector. And, um, and, and they were looking very specifically for people who didn't have any experience. And that was me. Mm-hmm. So I thought this is for me, but I might miss this deadline because it's almost midnight and it's, you know, blah, blah. So anyway, I got the application in and I thought to myself, right, if I don't get this now, I am going to, this is my last chance. I'm going to have to knock this on the head. Turns out that it came through, and that was the thing that opened all the doors for my career. Um, mm. I was working at, um, so you basically got a placement, and I went to work for Birmingham Repertory Theatre. As soon as I walked in to those doors and I got speaking to the people, I just thought, this is home. This is, I feel like I really belong here. And I'd done so many terrible, terrible temp jobs. I'd worked in Barclays Bank as a data entry clerk. I'd done, all, I'd done like loads and loads and loads of really horrible, terrible jobs <laughs> to know that I didn't belong there. So that's why I knew as soon as I walked into the creative environment, I thought, this is where I feel like I belong. And I turned up in my, I turned up in a business suit. I turned up in a grey suit, and thinking, yeah, I'm going to look smart on my first day. And then I remember someone saying to me, "Have you come here to sell us some insurance?" <laughs> wow, I'm only laughing because you've got a real style about you, and I just can't. That that just makes me laugh. The image of you in a grey suit. <laughs> And went through stage door and I could see everyone dressed very very kind of quirky individualistic and stuff and I just thought oh, I can't come back here like this tomorrow you should have put a trilby you should have put a trilby on and drawn a little mustache on and made it like a joke costume I think that would have been brilliant if I'd have done that <laughs> oh that's wonderful I love that and then, I just I distinctly remember that that even even articulating it to my manager and I was like it really feels like a family here and it really feels like the individual is celebrated like you can be as different and quirky as you want and it's okay Mm -hmm. and I that's what I loved about the creative industry because I thought I don't have to change myself I don't have to be someone that I'm not I don't have to adapt myself to a business culture or a culture of of an organization in such a way that I'm totally different to who I really am. 
Yeah. And that's what I saw when I did all those temp jobs and everything else. And um, yeah. And so then beyond that, then I ended up finding a job where I could ex- be a producer. I was a producer first. So um, did various jobs, worked at the BBC, all of it, all of it, actually the, the thread amongst all of my work has been communities and connecting people and creativity and change through the arts and then I, I was working for an organisation uh, in the black country whereby I was able to be a producer and um, make site-specific work. And it was all about gathering people's stories around a particular theme and using as many diverse voices as possible to come up with the stories that would influence the creation of work through de- devising it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then beyond that, so I was there for a number of years and then fast forward to 2017, I um, got an opportunity at the South Bank Centre to produce a national piece of work, which was all about um, South Asian women. So, and it was also the, um, I think it was the 70th anniversary of independence in India as well. So it was very much for me about what's the unification here because a lot of separation happened in that independence. So I interviewed, worked with a writer and we interviewed about, I think it was about 120 South Asian elders across the country, all women. And we looked at their stories that were unifying from the Muslim, Sikh and Hindu and Christian faith. Um, and we made a, a brilliant production called From Mother Tongue, Mother Tongues from Fatherlands. And it was all about those hidden stories of the older Asian women and their experiences and their difficulties. But also it was quite funny as well because we had known actresses in it. So we had um, Shobu Kapoor from, um, she used to be in EastEnders. And then we had... Shobhana Galati, who used to be in Coronation Street and does a lot of stage work now, and she's in um, Jamie the Musical. Mm. Um, and then Shama Pereira, who was one of the first Asian presenters on television in the sort of early 80s. And we also had Aisha Hazarika, who is, you know, constantly on the news, actually, um, and is a comedian and is, was a former advisor to the Labour cabinet. And so she she's a really yeah so we had like a a lot of really interesting people in the mix who retold these stories of quite invisible women then then that was the point at which I thought I want to try and do my own work I want to try and tell my own story and then that's when I went independent and I started creating things like Jambo Cinema, um, like creating the piece of work that we've just spoken about, the making of a South Asian wedding. Um, And then the Asian Women in Cars, Road to Independence, that one as well. And the other projects that I'm creating, they're all about the universality between us. And although they're very specific stories, they're very much about connecting us as humans. Do you think, um, you know, like the early, the, your first opportunity, for example, do you think that and getting that first taste of what we talked about in the creative industry, which is that curiosity and, and the, the fact that you were not just accepted for telling your own story, but encouraged actively. Do you think that played a big part in you 
having the courage to move forward and tell your own stories. And is there also an aspect of you as a character within that? Because it's quite, you know, it's, it takes balls to kind of put yourself on the line in that way and to, to share your heritage and your own story. Not everyone can do that. That's a really interesting question. I think, I'll tell you what happened. Like 2015, I started to explore my father's story and I was like, okay, so he left. He left Kenya, he came here, he didn't really, he had a qualification to be an electrician, but not much else. Um, he went to work in British Steel and then got made redundant in the 80s, like, no, late 70s, 80s, early 80s. And then I thought, I started learning about my father because he passed away, he passed away when I was very young. Mm. So I didn't really get to ask him any of the questions. So I've basically been piecing his life together through various other accounts of people who knew him and other family members. And, um, and, I, and he, there was a certain thing that kind of kept, kept resonating with me, which was like, sometimes you have to make your own opportunities. Sometimes you have to give yourself that chance to, to see what you can do. And if you can't, you know, like the one thing I think is the worst thing in life is to have a regret, mm-hmm. is to think I should have done this. Or, you know, like not give yourself the chance, not give yourself the opportunity. Yeah. And that kept ringing in my head all the time. Like I just thought my time might be running out. And my, so my father died when he was 48. Mm-hmm. So for me, I always think to myself, That's, that was so young to pass away at that age. And what if that happens to me? Mm-hmm. You know, you think about things like that. What if that happens to me? And if that does happen to me, have I done everything that I possibly could have done mm-hmm. before I leave this world? And so I was very much thinking about legacy, mortality. And it seems, sounds like a very, you know, a very morbid, serious thing to think about. But it kind of, mm-hmm. when you realise that your time here is, you know, it's not infinite, it makes you... It makes you prioritise life in a different way. Yeah, and uh, well, let's face it, uh, t- tomorrow's never guaranteed, right? I mean, uh, and and we should always remember that. That doesn't mean that we should run out and spend every penny we have and, you know, and, no. and, and behave like lunatics. But what we should be doing always, in my opinion, is leading with the heart and leading with passions. Because I get no greater kick in life than what when I'm sat you know, drawing or exploring an idea that, like you said, the stuff that connects with large numbers of people, but comes from a personal place. That's just, you know, my, my own kind of context. And I guess, and, and your story in this respect, but really, I mean, you know, you hit upon it when you said about the temp jobs, I had any number of those. Likewise, I've got, you know, I can probably, we could probably go story for story with like bad temp jobs and experiences. And I always remember getting a job in between first and second year, um, at the place where my dad worked for, I don't know, 20 odd years. And bless him, he worked there for, you know, a lowish wage uh, that paid the bill, supported the family. He, the job was fine for him. The way he was, the, the way he was wired, the way his mind was, it was great. He liked the people there. He liked the, the job was fine. I went there with my ridiculous, you know, erratic, must be learning something new kind of mind. And for me, labeling boxes and unloading lorries, it was just very quickly, I dreaded getting out of bed at half five in the morning to get down there. And therefore, I went back to my second year. And in my first year, I'd, I'd really very much trod, trod water, turned up with hangovers, 
did the bare minimum to get the mm-hmm. you know to get the bare minimum grade and just to get through the first year my god I turned up in the second year with sketchbooks full from that summer I would come home in the evening from that job and think right that's what I'm that's my alternative so I have to make something of this degree you know I can't just be another art student who flutters off into the ether and goes and gets a, a job in a bank not that there's anything wrong with that for some people but for me personally the idea of that scared the shit out of me and therefore I ran after this thing that I loved and, and threw everything at it and and I just think that we should all have a degree of that and I know we all have circumstances and I know we all have real life going on but there's always a way if you want it enough and I just think that that buzz that feeling you described of walking into theatre on day one is just magic I remember the same thing at art college coming from school wearing my own clothes sitting in a space and having all these these new people and these new things and my word it's I've never lost the buzz for that, you know? And I just think life life is too short and we don't know what's around the corner. So why not give everything and go for that, you know? I think so. But yeah, it's 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 all of those things. And I think that that's, you know what you're talking about with the temp jobs and think that, well, this is where I could end up if I don't yeah. give myself that chance. It was it was kind of that sort of situation where it was just like, I need to, I need to give myself that opportunity and I don't know how it's going to happen. I remember thinking... I remember handing in my notice and thinking, oh my God, what have I done? I've got nothing to go to. And then I just thought, no, it, it will work. And if it doesn't work, I've still got experience and I can still do something else. But the other thing that really, I really kind of pushed me to go towards creating my own work was because I didn't, I don't really see it out there. I don't really see this kind of work mm-hmm. in those very mainstream public spaces. And that's why I was like, and if I, if I have seen it, I'm like, this is kind of so, this has been created in such a way that it's not engaging to people. It doesn't bring people in and it doesn't make them question and think. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that was another reason why I thought I just want to start doing things independently. And I'm glad I did because actually Jambo Cinema, so I was kind of already thinking about leaving the job I was in. And then when I did Jambo Cinema, I think I did it off £200. It was for a weekend festival. Um, it was a pop-up event that happened for one day. And it took me a week to make it. I borrowed things from friends. I borrowed time from friends. I borrowed vans from friends. <laughs> like, I got everyone involved. And I was like, look, I want to do this project. I want to do it as a tribute to my late father. And I just have to make it happen. Will you help me? And I think that's the other thing. It's like, ask for help. People don't ask for help. They don't reach out to others and just say, you know what, I've got this thing I want to work on. Do you fancy working on it with me? And then just saying that one thing, it's either a yes or a no. And even then they might direct you to somebody else who could help if they can't do it. But it was having that kind of fire in your belly that I'm going to do this and nothing's going to stop me. And then after I did it and it was up for the day and it was you know, the festival directors came up to me and they said, this has been the best event. Mm -hmm. This has been the one that everyone is talking about. And then it was the following year I developed it a bit more. And the year after it, it got commissioned by the Barbican. And the year after that, it got commissioned by New Arts Exchange. And it is a massive, big extension of what it was when it started. And it was like, you know, it wasn't a company. I didn't have any funding. And you know, not no major funding to make it happen. I just did it because I wanted to do it. And I think for creative people out there, don't let things stop you. Just find a way to do it. Mm-hmm. 
if you've oh, got something if you've got you know what the worst thing the indicator is if you've got that little voice in your head it's like do you remember that project when, when you're going to do something about it when you're going to do something about it everyone every single creative person i know has got a project that they haven't moved on because there is this like overwhelming amount of resistance for some reason or another where they procrastinate on it and they don't do it because they think i'm not quite ready but no one that's another thing ben i would say you're never you're never ever ready yeah i know you're you not never, ever, you're never ready just throw yourself into it and just make it happen I agree completely. And I think it's an industry built on beg, steal or borrow too, you know, you know, even the Spielbergs and whoever, the, the, the top dogs in whatever industry, they've all got a story of having to cowboy it at some point, <laughs> you know, and that's what's yeah. wonderful. And, and that's where the fun and the, and the learning comes from. And do you know what you hit on something there as well about the independent side of this? And I found this interesting because I've seen sometimes the most amazing, you know, theatre productions, uh, films and whatever they might be. But not very often are they accessible or taken to the right places. And, and I referenced, you know, particularly the making of a South Asian wedding. Um, and I think I had the rundown as Doncaster, Wolverhampton, Oldham, Blackburn. These are all places, right, that have got very diverse communities in terms of ethnicities, in terms of the people that live there. And yet they probably don't get to see perhaps that kind of project you know maybe they don't get to the to, to go to the barbican as often as the next person for example or maybe they don't have the money to access these things so i think it's really really important that projects like yours um are given the right outlets um and that's something you seem to do very well oh thank you yeah that's important that's completely important about you know art traveling to the right places where people don't normally access it and they don't even realize it's art because someone said to me but this is a living room is this art and i was like yes it is yes it is so because that's a compliment i think you know yeah yeah okay yeah i'm just like no like why is this interesting why is this interesting and then when i had um so jambo cinema when i did it at the barbican for their latent stand-ups film festival last year I was in a space and I completely hosted that space as my living room. And so people would come in, I'd get them seated, I'd get them to watch the film with me. And then they'd realise I was the artist of the work. They didn't realise that beforehand. And then they get to the end of the story. And, you know, it is, it is a project which is a love letter to my father, but also to that generation who came here with very little and made their lives here. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then I would be sitting around with all these people in the, in the sofa, on the chairs, in the whole, you know, room. And then we'd have such a brilliant conversation afterwards. We'd have such a great connection. And there were people who'd never spoken to each other or seen each other in their lives talking about their own families and about, you know, movement and love and loss and connection and loneliness and, you know, um, all of those things that they connected with. although is a very specific story to me and my community and South Asian community. It connected with so many different people. I remember a Romanian Romanian family came in, the majority of the audience were were white and they came in and they just said, we just, there was a queue outside and we were just about to close down and they went, oh, please let us in. We've heard this is amazing. Can you please let us have one more? 
and and I just it was uh, some one of my friends was in that queue and he said the amount of people who are talking about this project as a must see and for me that was such an amazing comment to hear because I just thought I I, I always think when I'm making something I find this interesting but is anyone else going to find it interesting mm -hmm. and that there was someone saying to me I, I definitely want to see this and uh, it was it was just amazing actually it's the first time that I thought okay I'm doing something right and I'm never ever one of those people who thinks oh you know I always I always have that thing of like okay last time maybe that was a fluke it's not maybe that was a fluke last time and we, you all, know. we all have that I think it, I think it's the it, the sensitivity of the artist and then the tendency to doubt what what we do because of often how it's perceived in wider society as in it's artist playing when it's really not but you know you know what that you know jambo cinema when like i had all those people in the room and they were all strangers and started speaking to each other i realized at that point why this project was important mm -hmm. as well additionally you know, i'm talking about the layers yeah because it provided a space yes to be curious and ask questions but it provided a space for respectful discourse you know you know in this kind of social media world that we live in where you say one thing and you have an opinion and then all of a sudden a million people jump on you and tell you why you're wrong there wasn't none of that there was a really lovely way of getting opinions across and speaking and and discussion mm -hmm. and i thought this is what's missing actually in society we're missing a space for respectful discourse in real life not just on the social media in real life i agree let's uh, very very strongly agree I, I said this going back to things like brexit i said that if we lived in a culture where we were able to talk freely openly not worry about maybe saying the wrong thing you know you, you know what i mean in a, in a way that in a tripping up over ourselves or or in, you know, not in a malicious way but but if we could just have open debate and sit down and share each other's experiences and have a civil conversation and you know then I really don't think we would have got into the mess that we, we find ourselves in. You know, I, I think it's yeah. a real shame and I think there's so much misunderstanding on both sides and I just think it, there shouldn't even be both sides. I just I think if there was more of the work that you do um, in communities, then I think we could quite easily have avoided a lot of this. I think, you know, what's really difficult though, Ben, like a lot of the work that I do it is about people and it's a lot about, you know, working class stories and it's, you know, focus, a lot of it focuses on South Asian stories as well, but you know how it's relatable to other people, and sometimes that gets pocketed off by, you know, venues, arts venues, as being community work, mm -hmm. and sometimes that's very frustrating because you think, well, you could have something that's very, um, you know, high end by one of these famous artists from a different part of the world. But no one will enter your gallery to see that work because it does it's not accessible to them. Yeah. But when you make something about the people, it is accessible to them and that should not just be pocketed off into this is artistic that has the the, the people who are the taxpayers. Yeah. You know, it's about it's giving them that engagement, it's making them relevant, it's making this venue relevant to them. Yeah. So completely you know, you know like we said, it's not it's not putting work in a gallery uh, where the people you're trying to show the work to are not going to go. It's very much 
that's what's beautiful about the to, the, the to scale thing. That's what I adore about these projects is that it's just you stand in it and it's a real thing and, and you're there and it's just, it, it, do, it does all the talking, you know, it, it cuts away. It doesn't, you don't need a little, a little bit of text underneath it to tell you what it means, you know, it's just, yeah, you yeah. can interpret it. And I think that ownership is really important too. I think it's um, people, you know, people need to be given the respect to, to allow them into the space and to interpret it for themselves and then have the ability to ask questions to you, the artist or to, you know, other people in the space, the ladies making the, the samosas, which were amazing, by the way, the curry club ladies cracked me up. They were so funny yeah. and they ripped me to shreds when I was interviewing them. It was fantastic. They <laughs> <laughs> <I know. laughs> are so amazing. They are so lovely. But yeah, and, um, and then from there, like then I always find that a seed of, a seed of my new project comes from my previous one. Mm -hmm. So then I started thinking about what I'm going to do next. And the Asian women in cars came from me thinking about actually having a conversation with my aunt about the fact that her having a car meant that it basically saved her from being um, evicted from her house. Mm -hmm. Because my, you know, there's, there's a, there's a, there's a story there about, you know, um, sort of lost and alcoholism and all sorts of other things but it's essentially about you know her having to secretly um learn learn the car learn how to drive and then to basically be the breadwinner of the family so then i thought okay well why don't i try and explore this story a bit more but particularly from the generation of my mother's generation whereby they weren't always allowed to do things and it was a very much a patriarchal family structure. The roles were very divided and it was a case of the men went out to work and the women stayed at home. And that wasn't just in the Asian community, actually. It was a very divided, there were divided roles within English culture as well. And so I ended up going home and speaking to my mum about it. And then my mum said, well, I, you know, I was taking some lessons and your dad didn't let me drive. And so I just thought, okay, well, there is, um, there is a story here. And then I pitched it to an organisation called Multistory. And the director commissioned it on the spot. And she said, I think this is fantastic. Um, then we interviewed women, um, talked about independence. And it's the, the project is called Asian Women, The Road to Independence. And it, and it is very much about the generation of women who came here that had to really fight to get independence because that's not what they grew up with. Mm. They grew up with being dependent on their husbands. And that was a cultural thing that was very much about. So when I launched this project, and I always like to hang around for the first few days to see who's interacting and engaging with it. And then I had, I had this comment from, um, it's about, must have been about 55, maybe 60 English gentlemen. And he said, so would you mind if I have a chat with you? So we had a chat and he said, well, do you know that this, this story really resonates with me? Because I don't know if you're aware, but in the UK, women weren't allowed a bank account unless their husbands or their fathers signed the paperwork. And he went, and I'm going back to around about the 50s here. And he said, this is really relevant to me and my family. So I think that's what was, I mean, again, that was what was so amazing for me to see that it wasn't just relevant to a woman, it was relevant to a man and it was relevant to a different culture. 
and a different time and place but it enabled him to think about himself and about the inequalities that were in his own family. I think that's amazing. And I think it's, um, I think, it, and it all, it goes to show, doesn't it? It's, it's the, the inspiration factor here as well. So that even if someone takes a look at any one of your projects uh, and goes, oh, that's, that's really interesting. You know, that that's your story and it's done really well. But if it, it's, if it, just tell someone that it's okay for them to embrace what they've experienced and to, to run with it and to actually go out and create something of their own and that it doesn't have to be any certain type of project for it to have a huge impact on other people, then that's, a, that's an amazing thing. Mm. Yeah, and so and then, it, and then it ended up getting um, picked up by the VNA. Mm. So it got shown as part of their Cars Accelerating the Modern World exhibition, really? which was a big feather in the cup for me. Um, yeah, that's amazing. And yeah, and that was that was brilliant. And um, and it also won an award as well. And it got what it won an award for uh, by the Asian Media Awards that are supported by ITV, and as one of the best creative media projects. So. Congratulations! Richly deserved. Will carry on. I think it's got wheels. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Carry on. <laughs> comedy next as well. Eh? <laughs> I've done stand-up comedy actually. It was really bad at it. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. I love that. Do you? There's a big lesson here, and I think this is what this is something I want to kind of. Um, not end on, but this is what I want to make a big point of this. And and this is I we we touched again on it earlier about the sort of sensitivity of of the type of minds that, that people in our industry tend to have. You know, we're introspective, we see the world in layers and therefore it can get us as down as it can up sometimes. I in, I've gone through many ups and downs, nothing too drastic, but but okay, for example, about the environment, that's a big one that, that bothers me on a, on a regular basis. And at times, if I allow it to, it makes me feel really, you know, really kind of head up and anxious. Um, and there are times when I feel like, God, you know, I can't, I can't do anything about that. And I tend to look at the, the, the way too big a picture, as in, you know, we can't carry the world on our shoulders, none of us can. But I think there's a, a wonderful lesson in your work, Dewinda, and I think um, in that it doesn't have to be in your face it doesn't have to be an all-encompassing project that accounts for everyone that that changes things overnight i think the personal the subtle the um your own way of dealing with things is the currency and i think the things that are close to you if if tread right and if you know your thoughts your feelings on a certain thing if done right if done with subtlety and done with um artistic integrity can be really really powerful it doesn't have to be anything in particular and I just think your work is a great showcase of that and it shows the power that that visual communication has you know that the arts have the capacity to actually make great change long-term change without doing something that's insurmountable yeah exactly I think um it's a bit like comedy actually it's a bit like comedy you know when think comedians say things they have the license to say things that are really on the edge mm. and sometimes it gets something across to you and you think oh you know something that's a bit uncomfortable maybe yeah but they say it in such a way and you think okay 
there's, there's an important message here, although it's comedy. And I think it's a bit like that. When, when I'm doing something work-related and I'm creating a project, I'm like, I want this to have the message, but I don't want it to be rammed down someone's throat about this is what I'm trying to say. And, and I think it's about having the light and shade you know, it's about having one of those things that, that, and I think that's very important in work. It's like, it's got, life is, life is full of duality, you know, where we've got night, we've got, you know, the light, we've got, you know, everything's got an opposite, everything. And I think you have to have light and shading work as well, because that's what real life is about. We all have ups, we all have downs, we all have things where we're kind of in the middle. Um, and that's important to get that across. And I, I just think that activism, activism doesn't doesn't always have to be protests. It doesn't always have to be about angry people in the street. It can just be about giving someone a very personal, moving interaction or a, allowing them to think about things differently. To then go away and have that same interaction with another one person. And imagine that. Imagine Imagine the whole world was like that if we just affected one person positively and that person went on to do the same thing for somebody else, what would that do? So we're kind of making those changes, but in a very subtle way. And I think sometimes life has, to, you can't always be, there's a, I think there's definitely a time to protest and be angry about real injustices. But I think there's also a place for the more subtlety, the more subtle, um, changes that can be created as a result of making universal work about human humanity mm -hmm. said it perfectly and i just think i think it's really you know because there's been a lot of what's the point particularly in social media at the moment you know among creatives because of everything and understandably so because it's there's a lot of shit going on in the world at the moment but i just think you've said it perfectly there and i think there is a point there's always a point and it can be the smallest action and it really can, you know, the ripple effect can be huge. So I think uh, nail on the head. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I think, yeah, it's amazing that you're doing these podcasts and I think it's brilliant to get all these voices out there, actually. Um, I just I adore creativity and I think it's really, really crucial, to, uh, really important to human happiness because we're all creative. Every single, I believe that every single human on this planet is creative. It's just that society has a way of knocking it out of us or making us believe that we're not. And, uh, and I think it's really sad because I think it's really important to happiness, you know? So I try to share all these stories in the, in the hope that here's this big archive that you can dip into and hear everyone's different version of what I just said and, and, and run with it. I, I completely agree with you. Yeah, I completely agree with you that if you think about what's kept people going during COVID, it's creativity, whether that be film, whether that be, you know, music, television, you know, whatever kind of medium, creativity, um, getting back to, into drawing or doing something that they're not been ever given them, they've not given themselves permission to do because they've been told they're not creative. Mm. Um, and I think this kind of whole throwaway culture of you have to be good at something immediately. You know, this, this time that people have had, it's given them the opportunity to try something new and to get good at it over time. They don't have to be perfect at stuff. And I, and I read this quote and it was so brilliant. I loved it. And he said, the secret to perfection is imperfection. I was like, that is brilliant. The secret yeah. to perfection is imperfection. So I have a go at stuff. But yeah, it's kept people going. It's kept people, you know, sit, whether they've been singing or, you know, dancing, creating, mm. 
just doing something creative has helped a lot of people while they've been in lockdown. 100%. Even just sharing, even just storytelling, you know, sharing the experience. As simple as that. doesn't have to be a big project. doesn't have to be a conscious effort even. It's, I just think it's fundamental of human, you know, of us being intelligent beings that we are. That's, you know, I think without those outlets, it's, uh, it can be a bleak place. So I think, um, I think yours is a wonderful example. Can I just, sorry, can I just go back to something, Benny, if that's okay? No, you know, like one of the things I like to do about making sure that works, you know, getting to the, I'm, I'm doing something right and how I can always improve is um, by capturing people's memories and thoughts. And I've got like maybe 500 of these, which is, they're basically memories, people, people's film memories. Yeah. And what I really love about it, so I'm an analogue person, I love touch and I love feel and I love to see people's handwriting, especially because we don't get to see it these days. So I, I had people come into Jambo Cinema and they they said, um, I mean, it, these these were memories from all sorts of different types of cultures. And I had one memory that said, um, I remember growing up in a tiny village and a tobacco shop um, started selling, uh, started renting out the VHS films on a shelf, and we'd go on Fridays to pick up the film and watch it together with the family. There was even a naughty section behind the counter. And <laughs> <laughs> uh, someone else had said that that, 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 that someone, there was another shop that had um, a naughty section, but it was yeah, it was hidden away. And the secret code word that everyone knew that the naughty film was for was Betamax. Can I have a Betamax? Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, brilliant! That's so, so good. Ca capturing all these stories, and it, it just really made me think. Cause this is just you know, I need to keep doing something with this. So I need to figure out how to eventually get these into some sort of book maybe i don't know but that's, it's, that's a great uh, idea yeah vhs but i'd love to do one of them actually i've got some vhs stories <laughs> <laughs> yeah about piracy and all that kind of stuff so yeah hilarious yeah. but it's always nice to get these that's brilliant <laughs> <laughs> i used to go to where uh, there was a little there was a little uh second hand shop in keithley where i'm from and um and one day it was bric-a-brac bits of everything, sofas, ornaments, and this. But what I did have was this shelf in the window that had a lot of old WWF wrestling videos. And I'm an obsessive wrestling fan to this day. Like it only gets worse for me. And um, and I used to go in there, and he'd have like the Maxwell tapes. He'd recorded them straight off Sky or whatever, and he was selling these, you know, these boot. And I'd go in, going, "Oh, have you got um, like WrestleMania from 1991?" And and <laughs> and he'd be, and he'd bring them in. He'd go on the go on and look, and the next day he'd bring them in. And I go back to the shop, and uh, and that reignited my passion of pro wrestling. I had like a two year hiatus when we didn't have Sky, and I've been since then. I've gone on to work for like WWE and stuff, and done about forty projects for that's like, my dream client, and. Um, and it's Amazing. Just, it's just, you know, I used to create my own covers. I'll, I'll send you a couple of pictures, actually, but I used to create my own, like, collaged, really bad uh, WWF pay-per-view covers. <laughs> <laughs> but I love that. It's, you know, there was a magic and a, and a need to explore, like, the need to get a certain tape. I think there's something lost about everything being on demand, you know? I think that's a beautiful thing about it. Yeah, there was definitely a fascination between having things, like holding tapes and cassettes and records and all that kind of stuff but yeah VHSs. <laughs> uh, so well so what's going on have you got any uh, exciting projects coming up anything you can share with us 
Um, well, I'm gonna I'm still looking to carry on developing the work with the Jambo Cinema and the Asian Women in Cars. And then I've got a new commission coming up, which is We Found Love in the 80s, which I'm working on with um, a musician called Martin Ware. So Martin Ware is the founder of a great 80s band called, well, two 80s, 80s bands, actually, uh, The Human League and 717. So, um, and it's going to be, it was supposed to be a physical exhibition, but because of COVID, it's now going online. And we are collecting memories and stories, vintage pictures and footage and anything else that is related to people who found love in the 80s. Wonderful. And the reason why I'm doing that is because I just thought about that period of what, well, what are the parallels between then and now? And in the 80s, you know, we had a conservative government, we had high unemployment, we had... There was, you know, and there was kind of open racism with the National Front and kind of, I feel like ever since Brexit's happened, that's happening now. Um, and, uh, but in amongst all of that time between then and now, I feel like people were still falling in love. They were still meeting other people. They was, there was still something really positive about that period. They were still carrying on with their lives in the best way that they could and making a life for themselves. Mm. And also, I really think about, like, the throwaway culture of dating today and, you know, the, all these dating apps and Tinder and everything else. And it's like, what can we learn from the past about old-fashioned love, you know, and about longevity and about little things like patience, and um thoughtfulness and you know these are the types of things i feel like get overlooked these days but are very important bases to relationships and um and i was looking i'm looking really for stories that are about people who weren't really allowed to be together mm. so you've got gay couples you know who weren't allowed to be a lot of people weren't allowed to be open about being gay and being in a relationship or you've got interracial marriages where one person you know may have had to elope to be with the person that they loved and you know looking for those real stories whereby it wasn't the usual thing but people still found a way, a way to be together and it's love that's kept them together so i'm really trying to celebrate that uh, through this project um and maybe we'll learn something who knows what an amazing project i say god every single one of your projects blows me away and i think um that's really exciting. I can't wait to see that. And I'm going to, uh, I'll, I'll do some shouting out from the show to see if I can gather a few stories for you. <laughs> oh, that would be amazing. Yeah, I'd love to get as many stories as possible. And I think, I think where, you know, things have been quite bleak and a bit um, depressing recently, haven't they? So mm. I think a project like this is people have been at home. They've been looking through their archives. They've been looking, they've been having clear outs of lofts and garages and all sorts of things. And this, the, the drawer that no one wants to go into because it's full of stuff. But they've been going into, I suppose, doing this whole tidy up stuff and reflecting back. So I think it's a good time to do it. I think it's incredibly timely. Yeah. And, and you know, it can be, it's a really important part of any project, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Without a doubt, without a doubt, yeah. Brilliant. Well, I've just about covered everything that I want to cover for the show, unless there's anything else you want to shout about. I'm sorry I've kept you longer than I anticipated, but I did suspect it might be a longer one because you just... No, got... I've, 
there's so much to discuss in what you do. I just, you know, I couldn't not do that. The first time I had a chat, it was very rushed, given that you were doing your project, understandably. So it's been really nice to um, to, to deep dive into your story and, 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 you know, your ideas. I love it. Oh, no, thank you. Thank you for giving me this time because sometimes, you know, I'm, um, sometimes I, I will, I don't know what I'm going to say until I've said it. Does that make sense? Like, okay. I'm just, I just, um, when someone asks me the question, then you, you, then you start thinking about things and you think, oh yeah, that's, that's, this is the reason or this is a thought that I didn't know I had uh, or whatever. But no, it, it was, it was good talking today and I've really enjoyed it. Um, I don't know what else to say really, apart from the fact that I think, um, I do want to say actually that I think, you know, that the creative industry because of COVID has been particularly hit hard, depending on which creative industry you're in, like with theatre, theatres have taken a particular battering and all sorts of other stuff. But, you know, I just want to say to anyone who's listening, don't feel disheartened and, you know, start think this is an opportunity to think about doing things differently. And, you know, this is, it's a challenge for all of us in the creative industry, because sometimes, like you said, it's it, earlier on in the conversation, it's the first thing to go funding wise mm -hmm. when things are difficult, but creativity is also very important to us as humans. So I think, you know, we've all got to think about doing things differently and who knows, this could be the most exciting time of someone's career as a, as a result of things changing. Yeah. And we always have the power to make it. So I yeah, you no, know, it take, it's tough. And it's heartbreaking at times, but I do, you know, out of these periods in history comes great, great responses. If you look back, you know, whether it's through anger, whether it's through hurt, you know, these emotions, we wouldn't want any of them and we would get rid of them right now if we could. However, they can be great motivators. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Brilliant. Well, that's been absolutely incredible. And um, yeah, I can't wait to get this episode out there. Cheers to DeWinder for such an inspiring conversation, for such a privileged hour an hour and a half whatever it might have come to in the end you lose track of time in these conversations especially when someone's as engaging as Dewinda and her work i hope you'll agree i hope you're going to go and take a look watch the films if you can get hold of them um i'm sure before long jambo cinema will be available she's looking to do more with that project there's amazing things coming up as she said there um new work coming with martin ware martin ware join us on the original show where I talked to Dewinder. It was a three-part special for the Festival of Making, going back a couple of years, so go back and listen to that. Uh, Martin was founding member of Heaven 17 and Human League, iconic bands in the 80s. He completely switched from commercial and songwriting to audio soundscaping and these amazing artistic installations all around the world. So really excited about those guys collaborating there on, um, you know, the project about finding love in the 80s. What a, what a beautiful brief. Glad to glad to get to Winder to talk about that. So let me know your thoughts at Arrest on the Mix on the social media. Thank you to the supporters of the show, illustrationx.com. Wonderful illustration and animation agency. Go and check out their portfolios and brilliant news site. Um, the Association of Illustrators, theaoi.com. Brilliant, essential organisation for the illustration industry. Let me know what you've been up to. Always happy to share projects. I'm doing a bit more of that recently. I'm trying to use the social accounts for a Restormimix to share great projects. So send us a few links. It's amazing how you put these call-outs out to people 
and get silence. It's just, you know, it's free exposure for work. That's all I'm looking to do. I just want to champion the creative industry, strengthen it. That's all it's ever been about this show. So get stuff over. Don't be shy. <laughs> anyway, thank you again to the window. Cheers to Craig Alden for part one of this episode, which you can now listen to in the archives. Do them both at once if you're feeling greedy. Um, at Arrest on the Mix on the social. You can find the shows on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you get these things. Or at the host account, soundcloud.com forward slash arrest all the mix. Thank you for listening, guys. New episodes coming up before too long. Like I said, more sporadic. Not putting dates on these things, but keep an eye on the channels on the social. We'll let you know when they're coming out. Uh, new book, Your Mum and Other Stories from the Backstreets of Britain. Coming very soon in the autumn in October. I'm going to be shouting about that on the channels. There's going to be original artwork giveaways from that project. A low down and dirty project. 21 short stories, 21 illustrations. Going to be a very limited run of print editions coming and then ebook and audiobook so watch this space over at ben talent on the social i thought what might be quite nice was to read one of the stories just one of the shorter ones to give you a little taste of what's coming so like i mentioned about the bicycle that you find the tragic wheelless bikes that some demon has come and stripped bare in the night it's something that i always walk past and feel um sad and that's something that's been common with the feedback i've had when i've shared the illustration so this one's called another sad stray in the pale orange promise of the city sunrise, slumps the skeleton of an abandoned child. Stripped to the bones overnight, cartoon piranha style, it waits without wheels, chained between two bicep-thick rails. A loveless, sudden end for yesterday's glowing pride. What once flew with angels on the ceiling of the independent bicycle store now rusts with hospital-strength beer cans in urban purgatory. No police force budgets stretch here. Finally, after weeks of sad passing glances, the council reapers come, the bolt cutter removal of the bike chain, a last arm around a brittle metal shoulder. Hope you enjoyed it anyway, that's a taste of what's coming, so um, we'll be banging the drum. So, nice one for the support guys, thank you for listening, have a beautiful week, see you later.